For all of you that weren't here for Sunday school, it's good to be back at Beecher Island. My name is Jeff Anderson. Uh, I pastored a church in Colorado Springs, Grace Bible Church, for many years. I left that to lead a ministry called International Bible Conference. I'm going to tell you about that in a second. And then in addition to that, I also get to represent Congressman Doug Lamborn. I do his faith community outreach. Let me describe that for you a little bit before we turn to this passage of Scripture. First of all, Bible conferences. So many years ago, we started doing conferences in Africa and India, mostly the developing world. We've had conferences with as many as 25,000 pastors in East Africa. Uh, Recently, we were able to get back and do some conferences. We were in India in January. We're in a state in northern India where it's predominantly Hindu and there's a lot of persecution against Christians. We have the privilege of being with 1,200 church planters. These are people who are the salt of the earth, people taking the gospel to remote villages, and many, many people are being saved. It's unbelievable. It's my privilege to just be with those people. As you can imagine, some of these Indian people, they're only about this tall. I've got pictures with people who come up to about here on me, but I expressed to them, I said, I feel like I'm a land of spiritual giants. You're the ones who are the heroes, and I love how you're passionate for the gospel, and you're planting churches, and... But most of those church planners, they don't have any kind of religious background or theological background. And so the Bible conference that we do gives them three days of learning the Bible and understanding how they can just read, explain, and apply the Bible. So uh, someone had invited me to come and preach every morning and evening for the whole three-day conference, preach from the book of Daniel. And so it was a wonderful privilege to be back and encourage these people who are doing the, the great work. But from there, we went up to a place called Manipur. Manipur is northeast India. Several of you have asked questions about it, but it's like, it's like more Chinese as far as their culture than it is Indian. These are people that are tribal, and, and, and by being tribal people, in 1908, about 100 years ago, just under over 100 years ago, there was a, um, a missionary from Wales who went up to this remote region of headhunters. These are true. They were known as being headhunters in the hunting that they had done, but also in their tribal uh, and their tribal ferocity against others that were around them. He took a gospel of John, one gospel of John, and they began reading it. Soon the, the village chief became a Christian. And then he took the gospel to the next surrounding villages and over the mountain to the next area. And this tribal group has now become the home of what's called Bibles for the World. My friend, John Podiety, is the great, he's the uh, great grandson of the original chief who had come to faith in Christ. Now that whole village has become Christians, and they are taking the gospel of John all over the world. Bibles for the World was just up with Billy Graham's ministry in, um, uh, up by China. What's that other? Mongolia. They were just up in Mongolia taking the gospel. They were spreading the gospel through Iran by giving them Bibles. But now what I want to share with you is, is that same group that I was with, both in January but then also a follow-up trip in April, Those people are being severely persecuted. There have been over 70 people killed. There have been over 400 churches burnt to the ground. There's awful persecution against that tribe of believers, of Christians. And we believe that it is a a, a religious persecution against them. And we'd ask you to please pray for John Podiety, for Bibles for the World, and for the Christians that are there in Manipur. And so that's one of the things I come to give a report on as far as our work with the Bible conferences. In addition to that, I get to work for Congressman Lamborn, which has been a true joy. Uh, he's focusing his attention on our national defense, trying to, he, he's the chairman of strategic forces. So that's his job to oversee our nuclear arsenal and modernize it and make sure that we're having the safety that we need as a nation. 
but then he also is advocating for Space Force and some of the other things that are happening. While he's doing that, it's my job to represent him in Colorado Springs, the 5th Congressional District where he is. And so it's my privilege to go around and represent him and to visit with people and then to make sure that they're getting help with the federal government. Because as you all know, if you're dealing with Social Security or the VA or farm management, it doesn't matter. If you're dealing with the federal government, you need an advocate. And that's what our office does. And I just want to give a little report. I was at a pastor's um, luncheon, and a missions pastor from a church called the Springs Church in Colorado Springs came up and said, hey, we've got a team, a dozen adults that have gone over to Malaysia. And they went out of the country to get their visas renewed and were coming back in, and they were detained, half of the team. So we have six adults that were detained at the airport. So we wrote a letter immediately. I went straight back to the office and wrote a letter of inquiry to the uh, Malaysian uh, U.S. Embassy. They also used it at the airport. Come to find out, the team that had been released included a mother with five children. I see a lot of moms here with children. Could you imagine if you were released to go into Malaysia, you have your five children, they're all 10 years old and younger, but the husband, the father of the children, was detained at the airport. He was sent out to, uh, to Jakarta, Indonesia, where he was put in jail for these couple of days, and they released them so that that part of the team could go through Japan to try to get to the United States. And so our concern is trying to advocate for these people that they might be able to get back into Malaysia and continue the work that they had been doing, but we're also concerned about reuniting this family. And so those are the kind of concerns that I come in today with or things that are on my heart that I wanted to give you an update, but also let you carry some of our burdens and pray with us in this. And toward that, I want to turn your attention to John chapter 14, please. John chapter 14, we're going to read verses 1 through 6, even though we're going to focus most of our attention on verses 1 through 3. John 14, 1 through 3, I want to thank you again, uh, Jeff and Christy, for your hospitality last night. Ashley, thank you for giving up your room for me. That was awfully gracious of you. Thank you very much for that, and what a joy to be with you. And then I also want to go back and Craig and Jeanette, uh, back when we were with you last fall, and you guys had shared a bunch of your eggs, because that family grows eggs like crazy. I had no idea that we'd take those eggs back to Colorado Springs and they would be like gold. I mean, <laughs> the way egg prices have gone up in the state of Colorado, everyone was like, where did you get these great eggs? And I said, man, you know what? I found a little, I found a little golden egg farm right out here that I can go back to. So let's stand, please, with reverence for God and his word. I'll read verses 1 through 3. You follow along in your Bibles. John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of God. Would you please be seated? So in this passage, this starts off by saying, let not your heart be troubled. Definitely reminds me of some of the troubles that we face in life. Let me begin by telling you the troubles that were affecting these disciples. So they had just been told by Jesus in the upper room that he was getting ready to depart and be with them. That means that he would no longer be on earth to feed them, to protect them in the middle of a storm out on the Sea of Galilee. He wouldn't be there to feed them and direct them and teach them. He was going to depart. He was going to go to his father in heaven. So they got the idea that he was going to be crucified and that he was going to be mistreated. So their heart was troubled because of what he had said. Furthermore, he came and he said, one of you is going to betray me. 
And so they're all asking questions around the room. They're saying, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Is it so? Who, who's going to betray you? So their hearts were troubled because they were all concerned and wondering if they would be the one who would turn their back on him and betray him. And then on top of that, to make matters even worse, Jesus had talked to Peter, their leader, and said, Peter, tonight, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. So now, by the denial, by the reaction that someone's going to be gone, their hearts were very, very troubled. Now, some of you know that in Colorado Springs, with as many military bases as are there, and you guys are familiar with the story of military personnel who come home, and we have this kind of picture that is often there, and that's the picture of a reunion. Uh, I enjoyed seeing someone come back from Afghanistan or in Iraq, and when they come back and get off the plane, someone will hand them a McDonald's bag and welcome them home with a, a, a happy meal or whatever they're giving them. And then they'll usher in, and moms and dads will be um, rejoined with their child. Uh, spouses are being reunited, and they're, they're warm embrace. Children are being... Um, having their father return to them. I love those pictures, and I especially love those pictures around this time of year, graduation. You know, the image of a, of a kid who's graduating and didn't know that his military father was going to walk into the room where he's receiving his diploma, and everyone's just cheering. Well, somehow we find tremendous joy in those reunions. But those reunions or the anticipation of that reunion is also what helps get us through those dark days of separation where you're far away from each other and, and your heart is troubled. Well, in this case, Jesus is not really talking about a reunion. He's anticipating the reunion, but he's preparing his disciples for those long days of separation. And he's coming to them and saying, let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare you for this time of separation. Now, let me kind of lay a groundwork as to how John chapter 14 fits in with the rest of the book. The Gospel of John is written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then believing we might have life in his name. That's what he tells us straight out. This is why the book was written. So in presenting Jesus as the Son of God, in chapter 1, there's an introduction to the Son of God where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And later on, it tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the son of God. And as the son of God, he's the eternal God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. That's the introduction to the son of God. Then we're given a presentation. The presentation of the son of God is where he's in a wilderness and uh, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the disciples are presented and introduced to Jesus in the wilderness. And then there's a presentation at a wedding in Cana of Galilee when Jesus turned the water into wine and everyone had to figure out, Oh, this is the Son of God. Then he was introduced or presented as the Son of God in Judea, Jerusalem, when a man named Nicodemus came to him at night. And Jesus answered his question and said, If you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven... You must be born again. You see, it was in John chapter 3 that Jesus said, Whoever believes on me should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, Jesus is now presented as the Son of God in a wilderness, at a wedding in Canaan of Galilee in Jerusalem, but also in Samaria. In John chapter 4, there's a woman at the well in Samaria, a Samaritan woman. And that woman came back and she said, There is a man who told me everything about my life. He knows about my previous relationships. He knows about my sinful background. He knows everything about me. Certainly, this must be the Messiah that we're looking for. This must be the Son of God. Everything in chapter 1 through chapter 4 is a presentation of the Son of God. 
But then in chapter 5 through 12, there's a rejection of the Son of God. And that rejection includes after he healed someone who'd been blind, they said, no, no, you're healing on the Sabbath. We can't accept you. Or there'd be other reasons they would reject him. Here's what the Bible tells us. The Bible says Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. The rejection of the Son of God led to the point where we're anticipating his crucifixion, that his rejection is going to lead to his sacrifice on the cross and ultimately his resurrection. But before we get to the crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of God, there's this little brief window in John chapter 13 through John chapter 17 in which Jesus, the Son of God, is preparing his disciples for his departure. And in preparing them, he prepares them, first of all, by an example that he sets. In John chapter 13, in the upper room, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and he says, if you're going to continue on after I depart from you, then you need to love each other as I have loved you. In the same way that I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also should wash each other's feet, and you should love one another. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He prepared them by that example in John chapter 13. In John chapter 17, he prepares them by an intercession where he prays for them and he's going to pray for their unity and he's going to pray for God's blessing and protection upon them. We call that the high priestly prayer, John 17. So there's an example, there's an intercession, but in the middle of that, he prepares them by an exhortation. We call this the upper room discourse. The upper room discourse is where he's teaching them as he's sitting in that room where he had just served the last supper and washed their feet and now he begins that upper room discourse with these words. Are you ready? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is offering words of comfort to a troubled heart. He's coming to those who were troubled because they had heard the, the message that he's leaving and they're going to be alone. They had heard that there's going to be a betrayer among them. They're troubled. But listen, my friend, it's not just hope for a troubled heart back 2,000 years ago. It's hope for a troubled heart today. Today we have troubled hearts of people who are concerned about friends in Manipur, India, or friends that are stuck in Malaysia. And my heart just goes out to a mom who's there wondering, I'm on the other side of the world from where my family is. I'm here with my five children under 10. I have a troubled heart for people like that. Maybe your troubled heart has to do with a family member who's been in the hospital this past week. Or maybe your troubled heart has to do with a family member who doesn't know the Lord and has been walking away from him or some sort of broken relationship or some sort of financial pressure or who knows what may be troubling your heart. Whatever is troubling your heart, hear the words of Jesus when he says, let not your heart be troubled. And here are three things that offer comfort and peace for a troubled heart. The first of them is when we are most troubled, we know that there is a person to trust. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, believing in God in the middle of troubles, that's not unusual to us. We've, if we're familiar with the Psalms, we've heard words like this in Psalm 56. When I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God, I will trust. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? You see, the psalmist knew that there is a God that I could trust. I could trust this God who's on my side. And when I'm most afraid or most troubled, I can trust him. Or maybe you're familiar with Joshua 1, verse, eight, verse 9. Have not I commanded you? Be bold and courageous. Do not be afraid, neither be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 
You see, in this passage, he's promising that God is with you and that no matter what the troubles may be, do not let your heart believe in God. But believing in God takes a whole different level in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You remember this verse? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. My friend, when I am most troubled is usually when I don't understand what's taking place. God, here are all these troubles that are going on over in Malaysia, and I don't understand what's happening with that family, or I don't understand what's happening with the persecution of Christians in Manipur, or I don't understand what's happening with this conflict. I've been, there, been in this relationship, and we've known and loved each other, but I just don't understand the breakup that's happening or the conflict that we're in. And the Bible says that you don't have to lean on your own understanding. You don't understand the physical infirmity that you have, the, the, the disease. But here's what the Bible says. You can trust in God even when you don't understand. Jeff, you remember that song that they sang years ago? They say something like this. God is too wise to be mistaken. And God is too good to be unkind. And when you don't understand and when you can't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. You remember, remember hearing that one? Friends, if you can't see God's hand and you don't know exactly what he's doing, you don't understand what's taking place, you can trust his heart, you can believe in God. But this passage doesn't just give you a father, a God that's distant and removed and somewhere out there. We can't see him, we can't touch him. I mean, he's far away from us. You can trust him though. But Jesus says you believe in God, he says you also can believe in me. To trust or to believe in Jesus means that I don't just have a father who's invisible and distant and far removed and powerful, but now I have a person who's come near. He took on human flesh. I could see him. I could touch him. I could hear him. I could, my hands could handle him. See, this is a savior who is in flesh. He's like us. Here's what I love about Jesus is that when I am troubled in my heart, I can also remember that Jesus had been troubled in his heart. In John chapter 11, when Jesus came to a funeral of his friend, while everyone else was grieving and mourning and weeping, Jesus also wept. Why? Because his heart could be touched with our infirmities. He could understand what it's like to grieve and have heartache and disappointment. And he knew what it was like to have your heart troubled. He even said it worse. In John chapter 12, Jesus says, Now my soul is exceedingly troubled, even unto death. See, Jesus knew what it was like to lose a night's sleep with troubles and anxieties. Jesus knew what it was like to have all the pressures of the world upon him. And that never deterred him from doing what his father had sent him to do, to go to the cross and bear our sin. But you need to know this. When you're troubled and something's bothering you, you have a person that you can trust who can be touched with the feeling of your infirmity. He sees, he cares, he understands. See, I want to refer you now to John chapter 11. And in John chapter 11, it's telling me about this person that I trust. And the person that I trust, here's what it describes about him, and I think it answers some of our questions. It said that Jesus was two days' journey away from Jerusalem. He's far away with his disciples. And he had heard that his friend Lazarus had been sick. And when he heard that he was sick... It says that he knew that this would be a sickness that would cause him to die. And here's what's amazing. It says that Jesus loved Lazarus and his sister Mary and Martha. And when Jesus loved them, here's what it said. When Jesus loved them, he heard that he had been sick. And hear, hear this. He waited two days before he returned to them. Now, wait a second. Don't you think that everyone would be like, wait a second, if Jesus really loved them, then don't you think he should go and heal him and take care of him? Even when Jesus did come, 
Mary and Martha came and said, Jesus, if you would have been here, our brother would still be alive. How is it that you could love us and wait two days before you would come and take care of our problem? But here's the deal. Jesus doesn't just love us and care for us in a, what I'm going to call a pampering love. Georgia pampering love is where he just gives them everything they want. A pampering love happens when you got all boys and one little girl, and that little girl gets all of your, she gets whatever she wants because there's a pampering love for a daughter. I understand what that's like. I got daughters of my own. But God doesn't give us a pampering love that just makes our life easy. God gives us a perfecting love. And that perfecting love is where he is most concerned that they would have the faith that they needed to withstand the coming challenges and difficulties. And so Jesus waits two days. But when Jesus waited two days, he came to the situation. He'd heard that his friend Lazarus had died. He knew that Lazarus would be raised again. But even while he knew that he'd be raised again, Jesus saw the people mourning and grieving. He saw the crying. that happened. And then Jesus wept. When it says that Jesus wept, friends, he didn't cry because Lazarus was dead. He knew he's going to raise Lazarus in just a few minutes. But he wept because he was the creator of everything. Remember what I said in John chapter 1? The word was with God. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus was the creator of everything. And he did not create this world to be a place where there was death and disease and sickness and heartache and, and, and pain. You see, the Bible tells us that when God created the heavens and the earth, it was all good. It functioned exactly as he designed it. It was perfect. Everything was so good. There was no disease, no sickness, no sin, no death. But the Bible says that by one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. So the death passed upon all men because all have sinned. We are living in a world that God created, but it's not as God designed it or as God originally created it in paradise. Too many people want to blame God for hurricanes and floods and fires and tornadoes. And we know that God is the sovereign director of all of that. However, we also know that we're living in a sin-cursed world, that we're under the curse of sin. And as a result, when Jesus came and saw the grief, the mourning, the heartache, the disappointment, he had a heart of pity. And with pity, he could look upon humanity and he could say, this is not at all what I... And so when Jesus wept, when he groaned within his spirit, when Jesus was touched with the feeling of our infirmities, here's what it did. It gave me someone to trust who cares about the situation that I face. Sometimes you guys might be asking a question like this. Does Jesus care? Does he care when, uh, does he care when, I, when there's been a, a death in my family? Does he care when there's a temptation that's overwhelming me and I keep failing him? Does Jesus care when I go through heartache and grief and disappointment? There's a song that used to be sung. Jeanette, I don't know if you know this old song, but it goes like this. It goes, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Friends, he cares. Jesus cares. He sees. He knows. He loves. He can be touched. by. And because of that, we have a person that we can trust. But he didn't just care in that situation. By the way, Jeff, there's another song that I love. A guy named John W. Peterson years ago wrote another song. I can still remember my mom and dad singing this when I was a little kid. But, uh, but it talked about how that he cares in all these different scenarios. Uh, and then let me think of how it goes. Um, yes, Jesus cares. He cares when your heart aches. Take him your many burdens. 
Jesus cares. All of that is telling us that we have a person we can trust. And so let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. But here's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't just pity and care for us. He also prays. So Jesus comes now to this tomb where he knows he's going to raise Lazarus. And he lifts his eyes up to his father and he says, Lord, I'm praying not because you don't hear me. I'm praying for the benefit of the people around. And so he prayed for Lazarus. He prayed for those people. And listen, he prays for us. The Bible says that when Jesus ascended to the right hand of his father, he always is living to make intercession for us. Did you know that when you don't know what you should pray for as you ought, that he prays for you with groanings that cannot be uttered? Someone say amen to this. Because we don't know what we should pray for, but the Bible says that he knows what we need before we even ask. We can trust him. Because he's praying for us. He cares for us. He's living to make intercession for us. And when we don't know how we should pray in a certain situation, and George, it happens all the time. There are plenty of times that I don't even know how I should pray in this situation. But as I'm praying, I'm asking, Lord, would you pray for me? Because we can trust him. He cares. He prays. And then number three, he steps in and he heals the man. He's got the power to speak a word and say, all right, roll that stone away. And everyone's saying, oh, by this time, there's a stench. It's been four days. He's been in that tomb. I mean, his body is corrupting. He's decomposing. It's gross, Jesus. We don't want you to open up that tomb. He said, wait, open up the tomb. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, Jeff, I kind of like to think that he had to call him by name, Lazarus, come forth. Because if he just said, come forth, I think the whole cemetery would have emptied because everyone would have come forth. Now, I know that that theory falls a little bit because there's probably other guys named Lazarus in that cemetery. But you get the idea. Jesus had the power that he says, Lazarus, come forth. People come out of the tomb and he says, loose him and let him go. Listen, there's a person you can trust, a person who pities you and he cares for your situation, a a person who prays for you and a person who has power to handle whatever it is that comes our way. When your heart is discouraged, when you are troubled, you can trust this person. Believe in God, believe also in me. But he also says this, In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Are you ready for the second hope for a troubled heart? It's not only a person you trust, but it's also a place that's being prepared. It's called heaven. And you see, ultimately, heaven is an assurance to us that even in the middle of our difficulties, our heartaches, our discouraged and and weary hearts, That this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And you ready for this? I can't feel at home in this world anymore. You see, when you start thinking about heaven, you start realizing that this is not our best life now. See, here's a problem that's going on in American church today. In the American church today, John, everyone wants their best life. They want to accept a Savior who's going to make their business better, their finances better, their house better. Jesus said that if you follow me, that you might have more troubles and difficulties. He didn't promise your best life now. He instead said that I've overcome the world. And he also comes back and said that the troubles of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, here's what I want everyone to know. I want you to know that when you, your hearts are discouraged, when you're disappointed with things that are going on, you need... To set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And by setting your mind on things above, you remember that this world's not home and that these troubles are light and temporary. But you know what? Sometimes the troubles we go through in this world are just good tools to remind me that this world's not home. All right, let me give you an example. 
talked to a brother today who came and said, man, my knee bothered me because I did overdid it yesterday. And my back is in trouble because I used to ride bulls. Why do you people do that? Why do you ride bulls? They're big. They're huge. They'll stomp on you. I used to ride bulls. My back is trouble. Says well, I need a hip replacement. Well, I can understand that. I mean, you're breaking down. He even told it me today. He's like, I'm breaking down. I'm getting old. And, and this body is corrupting. I understand that. Because for me, well, I had detached retinas in both of my eyes. So I've had 12 different surgeries and my eyes aren't good. But you know what? When my eyes and my vision is diminished, what it made it even worse is now I realize how deaf I was. Because when I could see, I could read people's lips and at least I could fake. But now I realize I can't hear anything. So I have to have, I'm a pretty young guy. And I got hearing aids because I don't hear anything. So I can't see. I can't hear. But I got great news for you. My taste buds are at the top of their game. <laughs> Food has never tasted this good in my life. All right, wait. So when I have all these difficulties, physical challenges, and the ones I just mentioned are light compared to someone who's having heart trouble or someone who's had a stroke, wait. All those infirmities are a reminder that this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal body will put on immortality. And very soon, friends, I'm going to have perfect vision because I'm going to be with my Savior in heaven. And I'm longing for heaven. I'm looking forward to heaven. Someone once said, oh, you know what? That guy's so heavenly minded. He's no earthly good. Truth is, Ashley, you can't be any earthly good until you're heavenly minded. And when you're heavenly minded, you're starting to look forward. Things like this. Have you ever heard of this one? I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one, a silver line. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder we'll never more wander, but walk the streets that are pure as gold. You see, here's the truth. Most American churches today, they don't sing about heaven anymore. Some of, I've heard pastors say this. All those old songs about heaven, they're a little bit hokey. They're a little redneck. We don't sing about all that. It's an escapist mentality. We don't sing about heaven because we're worried about having our best life now. People, if you're not thinking about heaven, if you're not recognizing the hope that is there for us, well, I'd say we need to sing about heaven even more. I understand about some people now, they're adding some new songs that are written about heaven. I say, let's sing all those things. And if they want to say that I'm hokey because I'm singing about heaven, well, I say, I'm, I'll be even more hokey than that. Because I just want to be dissatisfied with this troubled world. And I want to long for the promise of a place that's being prepared for me. Is everyone tracking? And when your heart is discouraged, you've got a person you can trust. You've got a place that's being prepared. And then here's the third one got a promise of his return. Here's what he says. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. My friends, Jesus is coming again. Now, here's the challenge. I grew up in the whole generation of people who read books like The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And we saw all the videos of a, a thief in the night and a distant thunder about the rapture. Jesus is coming again. And then they write books like uh, Jerry Jenkins and the Left Behind series and Left Behind. So we heard all those things. But the deal is <laughs> Jesus didn't come back in the 1970s like everyone thought he was going to. And then he didn't come back in the 80s. And thought, everyone thought, oh, for, for sure he's going to come back in the 90s. And, and now he still hasn't come back yet. And so there's some of us that grew up with those things that thought, well... Maybe you were wrong. But here's the deal. We're not wrong. 
Because Jesus isn't coming again because a book was written about his coming. We're not talking about a fanciful book or a story that's there. Here's what we have. We have a promise, a promise from Jesus himself that said, I will come again and receive you to myself. You see, that promise that we have means that I'm not just believing in the second coming of Jesus because of a movie or a book or because of some teaching. I believe it because Jesus promised. When Jesus ascended up to be with his father, there was an angel who came to the disciples and said, stop gazing up into heaven. This same Jesus who went up from you will also come in the like manner. Jesus is coming again. And I started anticipating and look forward to him coming back. Now, let me tell you what that return looks like. You see, what had just happened is a picture of a Jewish betrothal. In a Jewish betrothal, a wedding feast or a wedding plan, what you do is you set a certain price, a dowry price, and that price is going to be paid. And then you enter into a covenant. You have to drink a, a cup of wine, a, a new covenant. When you drink that cup of wine, the covenant has been entered. And then when the price has been agreed upon, when the covenant's been entered into, the betrothal was already sealed, then the young groom goes off to prepare a place to get a house. And soon he promises, I'm going to come back and we're going to have consummation. We're going to have a final finality, a full fellowship. Our, our wedding's going to be brought to a climax. It's going to be brought to the right point. But until then, you just watch and wait and believe because I'm going to go away and prepare. Then I'm going to come and get you again. Jesus is making that same promise because in the upper room, the betrothal price has already been agreed upon and he paid it with his shed blood on the cross where he paid the price for our union and relationship with him. He drank the new covenant. He drank that cup that is a picture of the covenant relationship that we have with him through his blood. And then he makes a promise. I'm going to go away. And when I go away, your job is to watch, wait, keep yourself pure, be expectant because I'm going to come. And even if I come at a time when no one else is looking, I'm going to come and I'll receive you to myself. Friends, Jesus promised this. He said, behold, I show you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. For the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible and we will all be changed. That means this, that when Jesus comes, those who have been dead and buried, they're going to rise first and they're going to receive a new body. And then we who are alive and remain, we're going to be caught up with him and we're going to receive a new body. And the Bible puts it this way. It says there's going to be a shout of God. There's going to be a, 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 the angel... It's going to be preparing the way. And then there's going to be a trumpet that sounds. And when that trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, to meet him in the clouds. And thus we will always be with the Lord. My friends, he promised and he is coming again. And we need to be looking to him so that the troubles of this world, are, somehow they take their proper place. You see, this world's not home. I'm a stranger. I'm a foreigner here and so some of you would say, well, Jeff, that's an elitist idea. It's an escapist mentality. You're, you're acting like you just want to get some rice and beans and hunker down in some place and just hold on until Jesus comes, baby. That's not what I'm saying. You know I'm already involved with standing for righteousness in our day. I'm involved in government, politics, and education. I think we as Christians should make a difference in the world that we live in. We should stand for righteousness. I'm not telling you to hide away some way with an escapist mentality. I'm telling you that when I get involved in all of the things I'm getting involved in, my hope, my ultimate hope, my, my lack of discouragement, it doesn't become, my hope isn't the next presidential candidate. Can someone please say amen to this? Uh, my hope isn't who governs us or what laws are passed. 
My hope isn't what the Supreme Court decides to do. My ultimate hope is, yes, I want to labor and represent his righteousness today. I want, to, I want to occupy while we're here. But I also recognize that my ultimate hope is not a presidential candidate. My ultimate hope is Jesus is coming again. Why? Because he's a person I can trust. Because he's got a place that's being prepared. Because he made a promise that he would return. And all of that puts a little perspective into the troubles that my heart faces. So let me conclude all of this. You have some troubles, anxieties, you have some concerns, some things that are keeping you awake at night. Maybe it's health concerns. Usually it's not your own health concern. It's your beloved one who has a health concern, and that troubles you. Uh, maybe you got some uh, relationships that are broken. A child has gone astray for a little while, and you're like, man, I, my heart is just troubled for that. Let me tell you, today we're going to agree with you about God stepping in and ministering and caring for you in those troubles. And the reason that we can pray with confidence is because we know that you can trust Jesus. Not only does God give the promise, trust in me, but then Jesus also says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Trust him. And when we trust him, we hold on to his promise. Would you bow with me, please, and pray? Lord, yeah, there's a lot of troubles, Lord, that we have around us. The economy seems to be a mess we got immigration situations that no one seems to be willing to address or solve. we got crime rates that are rising everywhere, including right out here where we live. we got housing costs that are overwhelming, and we start wondering how in the world are our children or our grandchildren going to be able to live? The economy becomes a mess, and people are, are in conflict. i got some friends here probably who have some sort of brokenness in a relationship that's really troubling them. And Lord, I want to come alongside of them and, and just express, we, we believe in you. We trust in you, Jesus. We know that you see and you care whatever trouble or anxiety we have. And not only do you care, but you pray for us. And then you also come alongside of us and you say, wait a second, you know what? These troubles, they're nothing compared to what the plans that I have for you in heaven. And so we're like a, we're like a bride. We, we believe your promise, Jesus, that you've gone away and we look forward to you coming back and we look forward to that wedding feast but until that wedding feast happens, Lord, help us to, to wait, to trust, to believe. Remove all of our anxieties and our cares and help us to remember that we can trust in you with all of our heart. We do pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.